Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. We've been really lucky to be supported by Vestra, both for the Festival of Place and for our Radical Rethink. And I want to speak to Romy Rawlings, who is their commercial director and also a landscape architect, about uh, Vestra itself. Because this Norwegian manufacturer of urban furniture is this family-owned company with incredibly ambitious sustainability targets and uncompromising ethics. And they're really um, an embodiment of how to do things differently. Uh, so I, I really wanted to talk to her about the culture within that organization and how they go about setting a benchmark for what they want to achieve and then bringing that into practice. Um, and I thought that could be really inspiring for people who have these radical ideas. And actually, how do you take it from almost a benchmark idea about where you want to get to and and delivering that through the, both the way you work, how you work, um, and and how you improve the way you work over time. So hi, I'm really glad that you're here to talk to me about this today. Can you can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit what you do? Yes, hi Christine. I'm Romy Rawlings. I'm the commercial director of Vestra here in the UK. Uh, There's a Norwegian um, company based in Oslo. I'm also uh, a landscape architect and have been for many, many years now. Um, so have worked in this sector for pretty much as long as I can remember. I never really did anything else. Um, and that's because I love it. Uh, very happy to be doing what I do. Very happy to be working with the people I work with on the projects we're involved with. It's, it's all exciting stuff. And uh, working for a company like Vestra, which is, I think, you know, pretty radical one is um, all part of that. So the last four years, I've really very much enjoyed being with them. And so uh, you're you're supporting our radical rethink initiative, which I'm really grateful for. So thank you for that. But I, I think it'd be really interesting to hear about you know Vestra, and and why why they want to support this this call for radical ideas. Mm, um, I think we're really keen to support you we have done from the beginning we were involved with your launch festival last year we really admire what you've achieved uh with the developers so far and the festival of place um we like your style of journalism uh, we want to be part of that um start asking difficult questions and expecting decent answers to those um we think you've got a a really good uncompromising approach in all of that which fits well with our own um and we like being and thinking radical, I guess, um, which sounds a bit odd, but we really look forward to supporting this particular project. And uh, no doubt there's going to be some exciting uh, work and projects that come from that. I, I think it'd be really interesting because what I'm always interested in um, around radical ideas, I mean, I kind of work in this world of ideas, but, you know, Vestra as a company, you're actually putting radical ideas into your practice, embedding them into the organization. So it would be really good to hear, you know, you've described Vestra as a radical company. Tell me about what makes you radical. And then I want you to tell me how you get to be radical. Uh, yeah, it seems very strange even thinking and talking like that, I guess. Um, but it actually the company and my CEO particularly surprise me every week. So I'm, I'm getting used to that four years in just thinking, oh, okay, so we're doing that now, you know, and it is really exciting. I think um, for us, it stems from maybe three things. Um, our CEO, Jan Christian, is 
in his early 30s. So he's really very young. He's absolutely passionate about everything he does and what he believes in. Um, and for him, the key there is sustainability and social cohesion. He brings that into everything we do as a furniture manufacturer, bizarrely. Um, he's a really brave and creative thinker. And he just seems to be completely unconstrained by the norms and expectations of our sector, which, if you look at it very broadly in terms of construction, it's a pretty old-fashioned, slow-moving, very unradical sector. So I think that makes him even more um, astounding when you, when you see and hear what he believes in. Uh, it's a, it's a family-owned business, so he is really very much at the helm, and that means we can change as a business very quickly. We're very agile, so his or others' thoughts and views and directions can be picked up and adopted really quickly. So that, that I think, um, makes us maybe able to act more radically. And I think really key to it, I mentioned it's a Norwegian company. Uh, we have bases in both Norway and Sweden. But I think the fact that it's Scandinavian has a big impact on that. And, and the sort of Scandinavian style of leadership and beliefs is really at its heart. So I think, you know, the Nordics are very much ahead of us in, in many areas. So equality and social support and the environment. And what we think of here as radical and quite new and fresh is actually quite dated to them, a lot of it. I think they're equally surprised by how, dare I say it, backward we are in many areas. And I think actually that does include urban design and landscape architecture and the environment broadly. Um, and I think they are just more innovative uh, because there's this really strong social and financial safety net in place. And it encourages new thinking and supports risk taking. I don't think I've ever met anyone less risk averse than my CEO, um, because you're never in real danger of losing everything by trying something new out. Whereas here you are and people, you know, do um, experience that quite regularly, particularly at moments like this. So I think it's a really unusual company for the UK, but actually not so much in its homeland in, in Scandinavia. But it, it makes for a fascinating learning experience for me, I guess, and others. So how does it work if you want? I mean, you talked about this kind of having this powerful leadership and belief um, but is, is, you know, we're, we're talking about this call to get in these ideas about how, how, how we can make public spaces differently, how can, we can work together differently. And I, I, I guess once we have those ideas, I, I would really love them not to be just ideas. You know, we want to kind of put teams together around them and, and, and hope that to help to nourish and bring those um, ideas to fruition, whatever they might be, if it's a policy paper or if it's, um, you know, kind of a prototype or et cetera. I mean, I think it depends on 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 what we receive obviously but i think you know there's that that sense that the idea isn't isn't quite enough you've got to put it into practice and how um how are those kind of leadership ideas or beliefs how are they put into into practice at vestra yeah i think it goes to my earlier point about risk taking um and this ethos is company wide no matter where we work and we have people here in the uk now in the us which is interesting um in germany or all over the place and wherever we're based we we buy into this ethos we 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 have to um and i think the people that are attracted are are those that want to and are more than willing so we do a lot of talking, but we do a lot of doing as well. And we, we don't compromise at all on our standards, whether they're quality or sustainability or our ethics. 
um, no matter what. And that's challenging outside of Scandinavia, particularly. And again, pretty radical, particularly when you look at the UK and our market here and our competition, where profit is pretty much always king. And that's not the case for us ever. Um, so it, it, it is a challenge. I've, I've walked away from a potential six-figure um, order for a project in London, for instance, because they required armrests to be placed in the centre of the benches that we were going to supply. And um, the only reason was to prevent rough sleeping. And I know I can't and we won't do that. So that was the decision and, and we stuck with it. So I think it's not enough to say, oh, this is what we do and this is what we believe. You have to show that always. So that's a very specific case, I guess. But it kind of filters through absolutely everything we do, you know, and it, it makes it very easy because we know what the leadership demands and sets out. And we're all more than happy to uh, follow that and adhere to that. And it, it's not in a dictatorial way at all. It, it, it makes it really part of this sense of ownership in the business. Um, and I, I think, again, it comes back to bravery in a way. It's actually taking a stand. Many, many of our customers completely support an approach like that. Um, it leads to difficulties elsewhere, obviously, sometimes with clients or sometimes with contractors. But you have to take a stand. And once you've done that, you have to stick to that. You, you can't then change your mind and go backwards. And I think this radical idea of rethinking urban spaces, you know, details like that are really important as much as it's about the bigger picture and what we would really love to see achieved. It does come down to how exactly are you doing this and delivering this and just not compromising on, on ethical or moral aspects, which I think we lose in today's society so often even in you know mundane it has to be said areas like the supply of street furniture <laughs> and i think it's uh, i mean that i think that anecdote really shows how that tiny detail is an antisocial and you know and uh, an unethical detail um so the little things do really matter mm. I, I i this idea of having of not compromising i think with radical rethink i mean part of and the developer, it's this need for kind of a shared and agreed approach too, yeah. because like you said, in this competitive environment where profit is king, it, you know, somebody else didn't walk away, I presume, from that project and, and put the arm armrests in. I guess so. Yes, and I guess I, so. And so I think what I'm always keen through the developer is to kind of think about what is this, what is the, the agreed um what are can we come up with some agreed principles to move this forward can we come up with kind of a shared uh, story about what we want to do but mm. you you know you talk about this kind of no compromises and, and bravery I mean also you felt confident in being able to make that decision which is pretty special and unique like in that you would have that that backing what do you think about you know that that journey from um I, there's a lot of mission statements that go up on on websites, whether it's about climate um, change or or biodiversity or um, sustainable sourcing or whatever it is. Uh, and then, um, you know, how do you take that mission statement um, into the culture and the the way that you work? I mean, is it is it is it about having that conversation? every day instead of once or is it about making sure you're supporting the actions that are empowering action i mean i think that would be interesting to hear from you 
I think actually it does come back to empowering. Um, you know, we, we are all empowered to act in that way. We have salespeople that obviously have targets and it's all quite normal in that respect, but you have to empower people to do the right thing. And I'm, I'm just thinking, actually, I'm not entirely sure we have a mission statement or elevator pitch or any of those things. And I know we've had meetings about them and we've talked about them and I'm desperately trying to think what it would be <laughs> if, if we did have one. Um, because I don't, I don't know that we need it. You know, I, I do think everyone within the business just understands the principles and supports the principles and, and actually sort of lives the principles, um, certainly in, in the business or professional lives. And, and I think probably most of us in our personal lives as well. And I'm just thinking, I mean, we do, we do have some very profound um, quotes that we can use from Young Christian, for instance, but I don't think it's ever been dressed up as a mission statement. And I think that's probably where the problem lies, that there is an awful lot of this putting them up on your website and putting them on the front of your brochure. And, and then, you know, after that meeting and everyone's agreed on those five words or whatever it is, everyone moves on and, and yes what's next year's going to be or when do we need to review that and that's that can't be the point i think it's about living it not not just inventing things and you know it's been going on a long time the whole greenwash issue for instance um it, i think because it permeates that particularly sustainability permeates so much of what we do and and that sustainability is about people and the environment and the economic aspects um, you know, so hostile design, putting an armrest on a, on a bench to prevent rough sleeping, that's sustainability uh, because you can't have a sustainable society or city or park um, if you adopt some of these measures and think that that's absolutely fine. It's, it's a tiny, tiny detail. It's, you know, in most projects, it would be so far down the scale, actually. You know, it's only people like me that really thinks about it on a daily basis. But it's a massive, massive issue in our cities and our towns and in this country and globally, you know, it's, it's even worse, I guess, than what we have here in the States, for instance. Um, so you, you, you have to have this holistic view and, and apply those beliefs to everything. You can't just write something down and think you fixed it. When you're looking at the sustainability um, of your products uh, from a manufacturing and, and sourcing point of view, what are you doing now and what are you working on? Because like you said, we're probably behind in our thinking. Mm. Uh, and it'd be quite interesting to hear the journey that you're on as a business. I think that in itself is interesting because, because if I was working for some of our competitors and I obviously have in the past, I would be thinking now, Ooh, um, what trade secrets am I at risk of giving away? And what can I tell you publicly and what should I not mention? And actually that in itself is so different because we are very keen to share our learnings, very keen to support other people on that journey. We've been carbon neutral now for 10 years in terms of our production and it's not about hiding away those um, reasons and, and how we got there. It's about sharing them and saying, why aren't you doing this? You could be doing this too. So uh, sustainability in terms of our production and our transport and, and the way we do business is, is just permeated through everything. Everything from an initial concept design to the delivery to site is thought of in terms of 
not just carbon, but, but a lot of it is about carbon or greenhouse gas emissions. So the materials, the finishes, the design, the logistics, the packing, everything is considered. So it's not as if it only applies to one part. And we've been driving down our emissions for well over 10 years now, and it's getting to the point where it's really hard to meet our target of 10% less each year because we've driven out so much of it. And the only way really that we can make a, a step change, the step change that needs to be made now is by investing in the new factory that we've just launched um, information about because every other aspect, the, the materials we use are only Scandinavian. So it's Nordic steel because that carries a 30% lower carbon footprint than global steel. Um, it's Scandinavian softwood timber, not tropical hardwood because ethically we believe that's the right thing to do. And that is warranted for 15 years. It's long term. It's not cheap, shoddy materials. Um, everything we everything we do, you know, the hot dip galvanizing is a really energy intensive process. But we have 100% renewable energy sources in Scandinavia that are used to heat that zinc. So we're minimising our impact there. Um, that's from hydropower. Um, it's it's clean green electricity. So we've we've sort of done what we can do uh, throughout our production and our chain of custody, I, I don't think there's a great deal more we can do. So to make this bigger change and really start to meet the Paris targets of 40% of, um, less greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, we, we have no choice really but to invest in this new factory. And that's, that's what's driving it more than anything. Also, that we are growing globally um, year on year, quite extraordinary growth. And within five years, we won't be able to cope with our current production facilities. So there's also that. Um, but behind the growth has to be this reduction in our impacts always. So tell me about the factory. <laughs> it is. I mean, it, I think it goes beyond radical, to be honest. It is completely bonkers in many ways. And I think, um, you know, everybody who sees it is just I mean, they are blown away. Every aspect of it is is incredible. We're all really excited. And I think the the biggest um, radical aspect of that is that we're investing over £20 million on this. Uh, it will be fully operational within 18 months. I mean, maybe a little less than that, I know. <laughs> and, you know, in the midst of a global pandemic, when I think we're facing probably the biggest economic hit since... World War Two. So, I mean, every aspect of it is is really exciting, slightly crazy, but it goes back to this, you know, lack of risk aversion. And no, this is what we have to do. We have no choice. This is what we need to do to get where we want to be. And where we want to be is being the world's most sustainable furniture manufacturer. So it's easy when you look at it like that, you have to do this kind of thing. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it doesn't look like a factory. It doesn't look like a tin shed or a normal factory that you would expect at all. It's a beautiful, um, Starkitect, Bjarke Engels group, uh, designed building in the middle of a Norwegian forest. Um, and they are removing as few trees as possible from this forest, which has been planted on a sort of standard grid. And, uh, those trees will be, um, uh, turned into basically the burnt uh, pine cladding, which will clad the facade of the building. So everything is being kept on site. Um, the impact of that site is as minimal as possible. 
there is a huge sort of campus park around the building that will be completely open to the public. People will be encouraged to walk onto the roof um, for a view over the forest, to peer through huge plate glass windows on almost every aspect to see what's going on in production. Uh, 24 hours a day, there are no fences. Um, So when we talk about transparency in terms of, you know, giving away trade secrets, this is literally a transparent factory to try and um, educate people in what that means, in what's possible to encourage children, young people to think about something like this being an exciting career path, because I don't think it is really at the moment. I don't think most children would be particularly excited at the prospect of you know, making street furniture. Um, so there are many, many aspects that it's designed to um, entice people in and, and, and just be exciting, be interesting, be a learning institute, if you like, and we, we will prove and show how you can do things better. So it, it is hugely exciting. Um, and the next year uh, we've got, we're breaking on site, I think, next month. And there's a chance that it will be open by the end of next year. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm wondering maybe the spring of 22. But yeah, and then um, Young Christian, our CEO's dream is that it will be maybe number one on TripAdvisor's uh, places in Norway that you need to visit. I'm being absolutely serious. That is his dream. <laughs> so... <Thank you. laughs> When, when, when you're built, I mean, a lot of the people listening will be engaged in, in projects. I mean, how much of a focus was sustainability in the construction of the, of the factory? Uh, it, it's driven absolutely everything. Um, yeah, definitely. We, we need to do this because by building the factory, we will reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 by 50%, which is actually the Norwegian enhanced target over and above the Paris Agreement target of 40%. So it will have a huge impact. Um, and as we grow and produce more, that's really important. So none of the materials and the finishes and the production will change really in that sense. But it's going to involve um, self-teaching robots, autonomous vehicles. So there'll be a lot less human interaction. It will be a lot more efficient. Um, efficiencies in powder coating where it used to take 30 minutes to change a nozzle in a different colour. It's something like 15 seconds now, I think. So huge efficiencies, cutting down our lead time, cutting down waste. Um, We'll recycle over 90% of the water that's used in production so it won't impact on its surroundings, which are obviously a a natural environment. It is in the middle of a forest. And it's a passive house standard uh, building. And we are going for Bream outstanding. And I understand only about 1% of buildings of this type globally uh, achieve that. So, and in fact, I'm I'm not sure there are any if, if many. So it's, it's a major target and, um, it, you know, it's, it's something huge to strive for. So the sustainable aspect is throughout everything. Um, it's called the plus because it's shaped like a plus symbol, a cross symbol. Um, and ultimately it's going to use 90% less energy, um, to run than a factory of its type. And we're not talking about a kind of, you know, ancient crumbling building on an industrial estate. I was going to say Rotherham. I don't think I should because I might upset someone, but you know, (laughs) anywhere, not just Rotherham. Um, This is a sort of building of its same type. So it's hugely efficient. 
Um, and I think we'll only need heating when um, outdoor temperatures go below five degrees, which will be quite a lot of the time in Norway, but that's pretty exceptional. That's due to everything in its construction. Um, so we, we definitely don't believe in doing things by halves. It is, it is astonishing some of the, the goals and the targets that we've been setting for it. How do you decide, how do people get to and from the factory? Has that been factored in as well? Yes, it's, a, it's on a major sort of arterial route, um, very near the Norwegian-Swedish border. So at the moment, we have our factory um, within Sweden and the office in Oslo, and it's about a two, two and a half hour drive between the two. And this is almost exactly in the middle. Um, so it, it, it's, again, reducing our road miles, keeping our impact down by by handling all of the production in a very small area and then it's on a national route so that makes it very easy to take shipments out um, one of the things that we are still waiting for i believe we first invested in the first um tesla semi the all-electric um arctic from tesla three years ago i think and we're still waiting but we hope that by the time this is all operational we will have a fleet or oh, a few of those, um, and they will be doing all of the transport between the production facilities and uh, moving our furniture around. And that's 100% electric. And as I mentioned, you know, electricity there is 100% renewable. So that's a minor impact. Um, and then uh, the local workforce will be encouraged to cycle in. Um, I, I think there's a plan to give people bicycles, which is very Boris-like. Um, at this moment in time so i think there are measures around that as well and to make the whole uh, you know aspect um green as green as we possibly can and it's on the edge of a a town called magnor in in norway so looking to employ people from the vicinity and you know make the most of that as well they have a really interesting um history in glass making that's that's what that town is particularly known as in terms of craftsmanship but also joinery it's a it's a very strong sort of forestry area so, yeah, looking, I mean, again, there's no aspect that hasn't really been considered in terms of, you know, people or, um, or the planet, for sure. I think it's so inspiring because, I mean, it's kind of what we're going for. You know, on the one hand, it sounds completely overwhelming to rethink mm. the way that you do everything, every small thing. Uh, and how big that adds up to. But it really is indicative and, and kind of relates to this Radical Rethink initiative, which really is about you know rethinking you know bits of what we do with the ambition that if you rethink enough of them it can add up to be quite a seriously large like you said an, a 90 percent reduction in in energy yeah use, I, which is I, I, quite staggering it, it is it's astonishing and I, I think that's i think that's a really good point you know we are a very small business our impact globally is non-existent really absolutely minuscule and you could think, as we all do as individuals, well, what's the point? What's the point in separating all those plastics? What, you know, what is the point? What's, what difference is, going to, is that going to make? And if we all adopted that approach, we would be getting nowhere. So we, we always say we can all save the planet a little, you know, and it, it's exactly that. And I think with the radical rethink, it shouldn't matter whether this project is tiny and we worked with Will, um, Will Sandy four years ago on a very small project in Brixton, which still has a lasting legacy. And we're really pleased to have worked on that tiny project, really, but, but really meaningful for the com community. Or whether we're looking at something of a much greater scale. It doesn't really matter. It shouldn't really matter. It's that whole kind of, you know, 
it's greater than the sum of its parts. So a number of small projects can have a really big impact. And, and that's absolutely how we work at Vestra. We know that we're not um, a global force to be reckoned with, you know, in, in the traditional sort of sense of business. But that doesn't stop us um, thinking radically just ignoring that and thinking this is what we do this is how we do it and that won't change and you just keep doing it and I, I think you know that's why this rethink is exciting the same principles apply you know it shouldn't matter about scale you know somebody's brilliant idea on a couple of sheets of paper you know and and yeah follow it up and see what happens I think it can feel overwhelming on a big project I think I often hear people say um that there's a lot of repetition when it comes to landscape and urban design and master planning in general, um, just the entire uh, construction industry. You know, we've done it this way before. This is the product we've used before. This is the supplier we've always used. Mm. I know them. I know they'll, you know, deliver it on time or I know they'll, you know, it's an industry in, you know, where people know um, very heavily based on relationships uh, where I think there was a statistic about, um, the kind of repetition in terms of people, almost in the specification of one project being almost copy pasted onto the next. Um, it, it, <laughs> I don't think know. it's almost, I think that's exactly <laughs> what happens sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think, you know, how do you to break that? Because of course you are still, when you approach a new master plan or an urban design, you're still thinking about all of these things, even if you're mostly copy pasting, you're still thinking about the size and scale and use of the buildings and the materials and the so it, it what does it you know what does it take around that table um to, to how do you break how do you break the inertia mm. it's hard i i would say it is hard we've we've found that for the last four years since i've been um building vester up in the uk and I understand it as a landscape architect from the other side. You know, it's, it's about trust. We are a small Norwegian business that exports out of Sweden and nobody knew us a few years ago. So for contractors placing orders, that's a trust issue. You know, is the stuff going to turn up? Is it going to fall apart? Is it, you know, what about payments? Um, and from the specifier, again, it comes back to trust, really, knowing that what we're promising and what we say in a CPD or what our catalogue looks like is going to deliver on the ground because we weren't well known uh, we don't have huge numbers of projects and so it's building that um, trust up so at that scale I think it's it's what we've been doing it's talking it's educating it's reassuring but I think at a, at a greater scale there is something fundamentally wrong with our procurement in this sector. Uh, and I, I mean, I bang on about it a lot, to be honest, but it is, it's an absolute bugbear. This um, similar approved or, uh, or equal or approved, whatever you want to call it, and the, the value engineering that takes place and we see throughout projects time and time again. And when you're a, a company like we are with, with sort of uncompromising warranties and standards and you know that does bring about a certain level of cost um i don't think we're ridiculously expensive i think we sit very well against many of our competitors but we are always there to be shot at and there will always be somebody cheaper because um they don't offer a lifetime warranty on the steel or you know they're not carbon neutral in their production so of course there's going to be someone that can do something cheaper and i just don't think 
everybody in the sector values quality or thinks about sustainability. And you find a lot of the time, you know, everybody sets out to be green, to have a sustainable product. Um, and then if it costs more, or, or, or ethical product, even if it costs more, forget it. And, and I think today that's astonishing that, that it can still happen. You know, it, it, it's fine to be green and, until it costs more, or, you know, there's some other reason that is, is used to get around it. Um, and I find with specifiers, they understand that, that that's what they want, that their clients are convinced, and then something goes wrong somewhere down the line. And it's, it's a lot of the silo working and thinking that, that is endemic within our sector. Um, a lot of the trust, actually, it's still very much, I think, unfortunately, a bit of a them and us with specifiers and contractors. And um, we just don't collaborate uh, and we, you know, as I said before, we're more than happy to educate and engage people in any conversation they'd like to have to be scrutinised. And if we were all a bit more open to that, I think it it would be better. Uh, but it's it's a big thing to change because this, you know, I've been in this industry maybe thirty years, working as as a landscape architect, and now doing what I do. It just astounds me how little things have changed. It's a very slow-moving, old-fashioned industry based on old-fashioned ideals in every way, actually. I mean, don't even start you know, thinking about equality or, or anything else, really. And it's a lot to go for. I think, again, you just have to pick your battles and take a stance and stick to it. But, but there is a lot to change. I really like your be uncompromising. I think, you know, it's quite a, a, a bold thing to be. It's a small thing to be in some instances, but it, with, a, with the potential for a great impact. I think I would love all of the radical rethinkers out there to be uncompromising. And, uh, mm. and I do think there is, um, you know, across, I and mean, that's one of the amazing things about the, develop, the developer community is that I'm meeting all these people who are within organizations and um, councils and, you know, architecture firms and um, all kinds of different uh, developers and, and, and investors and investment banks, you know, and they, mm -hmm. and, and they reach out and they say, I love your content because I believe this industry needs to change and I want to be part of that change. So, so we are building a rebel army. Yeah. Good. And, uh, and radical rethink, <laughs> I think, is, is part of that. So what are you hoping to see when we get these ideas in? Is there, are there any tips or advice you want to, um, or, uh, or things you want to call for? I, I think, yeah, be brave. You know, don't, don't be battered down by the, oh, we tried that and it didn't work. Or, you know, oh, I know, I know how this has gone in the past. I think just, yeah, be uncompromising and, and see what comes of it. Um, I was thinking of one of the projects I really love and admire. I went to Barcelona last year uh, for a family weekend and had dinner with one of my ex-colleagues from Escafet who are based in, in Barcelona, um, again, street furniture manufacturers. And so it was a bit of a busman's holiday again. And he Enrique said to me, you have to go and see the super blocks. Um, so I dragged everybody off on the Saturday to go and look at this super block, uh, one particular one in the heart of Barcelona. And it was just incredible, you know, just something so simple, removing the, the inner grid of road networks, street networks from these blocks and what had been achieved there. There were kids on tricycles um, running around blowing bubbles. Uh, it was absolutely stunning. It was, I mean, it helped that it was a lovely day, I guess. Uh, but 
you know, that kind of project, I think, you know, it, I know how hard that is to achieve and, and more so possibly in the UK than even there. But what's come from that, um, from a very, very simple idea and just, again, doing it, not just talking about it, not just drawing things and, you know, dreaming, actually just doing it and investing in that. And the, the benefits are huge. And if they get to the stage where they hope to in Barcelona by rolling this out across many more of the networks, everything from noise, air quality, reductions in obesity, you know, I mean, every aspect of it is, is massively improved. So, you know, that for me was a really nice example of something that, that could be done almost anywhere. And we are seeing that in different places. We, you know, I spoke about it at a Landscape Institute CPD day um, just a couple of weeks ago. You know, we've been involved in a project in Berlin doing something similar, in Milan doing something similar. Um, you know, in Oslo, they're now completely car-free, their city. You know, none of these things are easy and they most certainly take a brave and uncompromising approach and you just have to stick with it maybe five years maybe 10 years but it starts from yes that idea and it starts from building a network of like-minded individuals so I, I can't see any reason why that couldn't work um, here with with this project at all so it would be fantastic to see an outcome along those sort of lines before I, I leave you I really want to ask you um because Will Sandy wrote uh, the piece for Radical Rethink, um, you know, talking about how nobody seems to understand what landscape architects do. <laughs> and uh, I was wondering, because you're a landscape architect, whether you agreed with that and whether you want to tell our listeners what landscape architects do. Uh, yeah, I absolutely do agree with that. And as I said, sort of 30 years on, um, again, it's another area that hasn't really changed. Uh, whether it's my family, uh, well, not my husband, he gets it now, but further flung family who, who think I'm a market gardener or, you know, garden, garden designer. I, it, it is so misunderstood. Um, and yeah, I think it really disappoints me because I think many, many projects I get to see and work on and have worked on, on in the past should be, need to be landscape led. And that, that again is a very easy term to use, but it actually sums it all up. You know, we, we are in the best position probably in the entire built environment sector to, to lead any project of any scale in today's world when you're thinking environmentally, hopefully, um, thinking about people, you know, that the, the the summary for the Landscape Institute is it's about people, place and nature. And we are better placed than anybody to bring those aspects together and do a good job. And if, if anything else, I would love to see this hierarchy flipped where we've always been, um, and less so now, admittedly, slightly. But when I started out, you, you were the person that did the bits between the buildings. Um, no more than that. And it was really, you know, don't, don't overthink, don't um, reach too far, don't step out of, you know, your comfort zone. Um, and I would love to see that change because whether it's water quality or scarcity, whether it's air quality, whether it's public health, well-being, um, anything environmental from um, green spaces and ecology, you know, anything you mention in, in the work that we do, we, we can lead and should be leading. And I'd love to see that more than anything in the next 10, 20 years before I die, ideally. <laughs> you know? I mean, I'm hoping it won't be going that quickly, but it needs a huge overhaul. 
I don't want to and and um and give you your rage, but I'm positive that there are some listeners right now going, don't aren't they just gardeners? So mm. so with without without being angry with them for not knowing. No, <laughs> yeah. no yeah. I, it's difficult because it's such a broad profession actually i mean you, you you have people who are master planning cities from nothing in the deserts of of the middle east or new cities in china um you have urban designers who who wouldn't know a plant if it fell on them at the other end of the spectrum you have very green ecology based um professionals who are you know who are doing the newt counts and you know crossing over much more into that territory you have um people doing landscape in, impact sorry, LVIA, Landscape Visual Impact Assessments for wind farms in Scotland, for instance, huge infrastructure projects. You have people working on HS2 trying to mitigate that, and that's another one we better avoid. Um, You do have landscape architects designing people's gardens. I've done many of those in my time as well. Um, High street renewal, um, you know, whether that's surfacing, um, infrastructure, again, tree pits, making sure those trees survive in a very hostile environment. It's, you have people like me who sell street furniture. It's, it's a massively diverse profession. And I think that's part of the difficulty because although you have a shared training, um, actually what you end up doing can be hugely different. It, it's a wonderful profession because I think there is something for everyone, you know, you could be conserving historic landscapes. Um, you could be doing very, very contemporary new um, sort of festival landscapes, you know, or, or Chelsea flower shows showing what the future holds. But at, but at its heart, I think it is always about land. It comes back to land, land use, how we see it, what we want from it. And many of the landscapes historically that people think of as natural are not. You know, the capability brown parklands that look incredibly natural with beautiful lakes and trees and vistas, totally man-made, totally artificial. And that's what a landscape architect would do, but very artfully. And I think, and I think that the reason for calling for this landscape-led master plan is just that, right? You want a very good landscape architect will, will, will place the buildings in a way that mm. best suits the land. Sensitively. And it's that hybrid of art and science and actually management is so important and gets forgotten a lot. Um, it is a real blend of skills that I don't think you find anywhere else. And it, it is about being sensitive, I think, to, to whatever environment you're working in. Um, and then there's community engagement, which is absolutely vital. So many different aspects to it to deliver a good working place, whatever that may be, whatever scale. And I, I honestly think we are, it's been used before the term, I think Adam White, our, our just immediate past president, uses the term, you know, we are the, the sort of superheroes of the future. I do think we have the skills to apply to pretty much all of the global concerns we have right now food you know food shortages um food security air quality um water quality absolutely anything you care to mention landscape architects can be at the heart of that somehow and plugging the gap in that multidisciplinary team where they may where they may not know about water management or Mm. um ideal orientation or land use or how to keep the trees alive no, exactly. And I think um, if, if it is a landscape-led project, many, many times this sort of landscape engineering, if you like, that aspect of it. So that was very much delivered at the Olympic Park. Can, and this is important to developers and clients, can save an absolute fortune. 
Um, because maybe we think slightly differently. Maybe we think more creatively than an engineer might or, uh, you know, some other people with those skills around the table. And I think we have a huge amount to offer, even when it comes down to the bottom line, um, if we're given a chance. But you bring us in too late, forget it. You know, we are then literally just colouring in green in between the buildings. And that's not what we're about. Saving money because of, of water runoff, runner, water oh, Yes, but yeah. yeah, often very much um, water attenuation, you know, which is a huge issue now with climate change. These, these floods we're seeing, you know, it's no longer a hundred year storm. We're seeing them every 10 years, maybe huge costs in dealing with that you know you i mean it's it's widely known the cost of closing victoria underground station when whenever it floods you know those sorts of critical um impacts you know we do have the skills we could put rain gardens on those streets around for instance you know there's there's no part really that we can't act upon and it would be infinitely cheaper in the long term but actually, it comes back to the problems I was talking about earlier. We, we just have short-term thinking in this country. You know, it's all about what you pay on day one. We don't think about management or maintenance or whole life cost, whole life carbon, uh, the holistic picture. And that, I think, lies at the heart of a lot of what we're talking about. It's really unfortunate and it brings about really unfortunate effects. And we have to start thinking more holistically, more globally. Um, and and that would include landscape architectures, you know. Let us do uh, what we know how to do, and and take the lead. I think um, it's been really great talking to you about this, and thanks so much for supporting Radical Rethink and yeah, and, and contributing to... your your own radical ideas mm. to it. And I think it's really great that these you know these these landscape architects are coming to the industry and saying shake it up guys you're not thinking of the right things you need to start you know opening your mind and and encouraging them to see the see the world and see their developments and see the pro way they work and their projects from a different light maybe you guys are then the voice around the table is gonna help help spur that change which i think is i hope so yeah i'm really glad that we'll set this off you know he's yes he's done a grand job with your support definitely so fingers crossed let's see what comes of it If you enjoyed this podcast and you like what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash the developer UK. If you have a radical rethink idea about how we need to make spaces between the buildings differently, whether it's policy, practice or design, you can send it to editorial at thedeveloper.live. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at, at TC Murray.